From a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. It's a two-part craft for you today. The first is playwright Tanya Schaefer and singer-songwriter, composer Vienna Tang describing their new musical, The Fourth Messenger, released this week. Then the fine folks from History Talk tell us about the current migration crisis. It's all next on Craft. This is November 14th, so we're halfway into the month and halfway into No Ne Remo, National Novel Writing Month. So some of you may be most of the way into a novel or halfway done, or maybe you just have a really great idea and you know where to start. Now, imagine taking your great idea and adding music to it, working with a composer and a crew of people who will interpret your words through song. That's the process that playwright Tanya Schaefer went through with composer Vienna Tang to create the musical The Fourth Messenger. As Tanya Schaefer tells the story, the musical got its start in an unlikely place. It came to me during a meditation retreat. I had been interested in Buddhism for a number of years, and I was on a nine-day silent retreat, my first nine-day silent retreat, and um, I was thinking about the Buddha legend, and I was thinking about the the moment of the Buddha's enlightenment, when he he sits down under the Bodhi tree and vows not to get up until he's enlightened, and all the the temptations of the world come and try to get him to rise from his seat, and he, he sits there for seven days and nights, or 49 days and nights in some versions, it varies until he finally touches the earth and says, as the earth bears witness to the work I've done over a hundred thousand lifetimes, I have the right to be free. Then suddenly I see stretched out behind me the bodies I have occupied, the people I have loved, the tears I have cried, the deaths I have died, a hundred thousand lifetimes searching, searching, a hundred thousand lifetimes is enough. And boom, he's enlightened. And so I was thinking about that and I, I started to imagine this song and dance of the temptations. And I thought, oh, that, you know, this is very theatrical. This should be a musical. So that was sort of the very, very beginning of the spark of the idea um, where I thought, gosh, this story, you know, it's a very archetypal story. There's this sheltered prince who leaves everything behind. You know, there's messengers, there's prophecies, there's drama. So I, my mind was often spinning, you know, and that, which is sort of ironic because on a meditation retreat, you're supposed to be focusing on your breath, but, (laughs) but there I was for the entire day I was gone, you know, thinking of the scenes, accepting my Academy Award, you know, for the film version. (laughs) So, um, that, that was how it began. And then after that, I, I didn't actually start writing it for at least five years because I, I, I was trying to figure out how I could possibly tell this story in a way that would be my own. It was around this time that the musician Vienna Tang became involved in the project. It's a retelling of the story of um, Siddhartha the Buddha, except now it's a woman and it's happening more in kind of the contemporary age. Um, And so I think one of the central explorations that uh, Tanya was was having that, that kind of led to the creation of The Fourth Messenger was 
just asking, like, would would we tell this story any differently, or we would we look at this person any differently if she were a woman, um, with all the sort of slightly different expectations that we have of, uh, between men and women even now? And so it was a for that was actually one of the original reasons I got interested in in working on the piece with her was that I was I felt like I was grappling with some similar questions being a touring musician with you know ambitions that would take me away from family and friends and what that actually meant uh, in terms of, you know, what I was choosing in terms of one priority over another. Take me with you. Why? You've got something. Like the flu, maybe. I'm serious. I'm sorry. I'll miss you, too. I need you. Andy. You've got something I can't name. We've been through this. It's nothing personal. I'm just not interested in that kind of relationship. That's not what I mean. What song was the most challenging for you to write, and uh, and why was that? What song did you keep in the play, but you thought this one is really uh, complex for me for some reason, and and exploring that? Um, there were a couple. I would say the song. It, it was most challenging to create the song that Mama Sid sings when she first enters because she has to make an incredible impact as a spiritual teacher. Um, you know, we're, we're meant to believe that this person is basically a contemporary Buddha. So that's kind of a lot of pressure on her entrance that whatever, whatever she does, we have to feel is very powerful. So that song, her sort of introducing herself song, eventually became the human experience. Now see shape of the fear focus till it's crystal clear you're outside of it now peering in at all of this human experience all of this human experience which I really love but there were two other songs on the way to finding that song. One of them is the one we included as the bonus track, which is called Isn't It Amazing? Another one was called Breathe, Wake Up. That was actually before Isn't It Amazing? Um, and, and you'll hear some of the themes from Isn't It Amazing actually became two songs. There's Monkey Mind, which is the song of people trying to meditate. <laughs> it's like there's monkeys in my mind, monkey mind, monkeys in my mind, monkey and some themes made it into that and then there is the human experience we eventually decided that Sid's first song we would actually see her working with someone and having an impact on that person rather than her coming in and making some kind of a general abstract speech with the human experience you see her coaching a woman with cancer on how to work through her feelings of fear so you can kind of see the power of her impact on an actual person and that's what we ended up feeling like was the most successful way to do that. What songs are you most likely to perform for somebody? Um, what do you hold on to and say, you know, these are the ones I really want somebody to listen to in order to say introduce them to the play or introduce them to the idea of the musical? Hmm. I feel like um, there are there are a couple that are closest to 
the songs that I would write just for myself. Um, and I think it would be one of the pieces near the end called As Long As I Am Living. Um, and that's kind of a, a lyrical uh, expression of love um, and and of kind of more my, my classic um, wanting to talk about both you know, the, the joy and the struggle um, of, of whatever experience you're having. And so that, that's, a, that's one that feels closest to um, kind of what I, what I would write for myself. As long as I am living, there are places yet to go. As long as I am human, I still have the chance to grow. River forms each time it bends. I am upended in the flow, and I go on. As long as I am living, I can always be surprised. And then, in terms of introducing people to the to the whole piece of the Fourth Messenger. I think one of the teaching songs in the beginning, even though the you know the the play is not mostly you know Buddhist teachings or anything like that, um, but it's your introduction to the character Mama Sid when she's kind of walking through um, this this group of students and helping one of them in particular um, to to basically understand what it is to confront fear um, and and any of these other um, anxieties that arise. Um, in, in meditation. So she's saying, you know, like picture it and, you know, show me what the color of it is. And, um, and so I think that that's, it's actually been one of the most helpful songs I think for me and also for a lot of other people who have seen, um, seen the, the fourth messenger of, you know, this is the one they kind of hear in their head when they're having a stressful day. <laughs> see the fear. I see the fear. What color is it? White. What shade? Blinding. Like sun on snow. Yes. Breathe through the fear. Breathe through the fear. I'm trying to breathe through the fear. But how can I breathe through the fear? Feel the fear. You're writing a song about learning how to face your fears when you're facing your fears, writing the song. So it seems like a, like you're you know sort of speaking to yourself through the song there, or or maybe I'm I'm overreading that, but that's a really interestingly complicated moment for a songwriter, I think. Yeah, I think that one um, surprisingly was one of the easier ones to write, just because um, it was being sung from a from a teacher, from a wise person's point of view. And so what I mostly wanted to do was to make it this very calming and uplifting melody um, to kind of couch all of, all of these teachings in, in something really, you know, that, that would really translate very quickly um, and, and easily. It just feel like you've been kind of wrapped in a warm blanket. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I think there were some of the other moments in, in writing the musical that were definitely 
meta lessons, I felt <laughs> like Buddhist teachings, because we would spend all this time writing, you know, this particular piece, and we would like fret over each, you know, each note and each word. And in the end, we would step back and realize, like, oh, you know what? This sh- this song shouldn't be here. Like, we should just get rid of it. <laughs> like, and like we would both look at Tanya and I would look at each other. It's like, whoa, well, that's an exercise in releasing attachment. Like, <laughs> there was ever a situation where you're really clinging to something you're like but I really want this even though I know it's not good in producing like you said the songs how did that work for you to work with Vienna Tang was it just a you pass it off like Bernie Taupin and Elton John and say you're in that room I'm in this room whatever happens happens over there uh, no, it, it was collaborative, and the lyrics became collaborative as well. Um, I would generally do a first draft of them. I often would have an idea of what I thought it should sound like, even like a little melody in my head, and I would generally put that on tape, you know, so she, if, if she wasn't here. Um, if she was here, I would sing it for her. <laughs> um, and we did actually work a lot in my house where we would come together in one room. You know, she would come and stay with me for a week or two. We, we would come together, uh, talk it through, then go in the other rooms and keep working on our own, then come back together and be like, what about this? And she would usually change the lyrics. Uh, at first, that bothered me, but over time... <laughs> I learned a lot about lyric writing and I realized that it was a very good thing that it had become a collaborative thing. Um, and, and I actually learned a lot about lyric writing because I, I would draft it, but it wouldn't necessarily have the correct shape of a song or have sort of a hook, a repetitive hook in it that she, you know, was able to make into the chorus. Vienna Tang, the last time we talked, you described songwriting in collaboration is um, asking someone to, I think, come bang your head against this wall with me, Um, (laughs) (laughs) which was a great description. Do you feel that way still? Is it still something that you look at and you say, I love collaboration, but it's ultimately also a very difficult thing. It's a banging of the head. Yeah, I think songwriting in general is not an easy process for me almost ever. Um, And so collaboration is just, um, it's not a, it's it's the same challenge, um, but I just have to get over my I guess my my inhibitions or embarrassment about um, that very vulnerable and sometimes frustrating process um, and let someone else into the room with me. And uh, fortunately, Tanya is a great collaborator that way because she's a very um, she she works through revisions, and so uh, that that was really comforting because she would send me things and say, you know, well this is very raw and we may change it, you know, six or seven times before it's done. And that would sometimes free me up to say, like, okay, well, I'm just going to, you know, throw out the first idea that I have, and um, and then we don't have to be, you know, precious about it. We can just kind of feel our way through it together. Um, so, so that was that was really liberating to uh, to work with that kind of collaborator. A lot of times, people will say of writing, and I felt this way of a lot of things I've written, although not songs. Um, you don't get done with writing so much as you run out of time. <laughs> and you know, you talk about the revisions of it and coming back to it. Um, do you? What's the signal that you have for a collaborator or, or with Tanya to say, you know, let's put a pin in it. This is done, and we're 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 leaving it because we could, you know, sort of infinitely revise it, but we need to move to a different song. Yeah, it's a great question, and I I actually discovered um, that that 
adage that you just mentioned applies um, tenfold to musical theater because not only do you revisit each of the songs until you you know run out of time in one way or another, but you can also revisit the entire piece, the entire arc of the story, um, multiple times. And we did that over the several years that we worked on the Fourth Messenger because um, we would have like a stage reading or we would have some sort of formal you know performance, a full read through of the um, of the music and the and the script. And that would, you know, give us a lot of information from the audience of, you know, are they following the story? Are they emotionally invested? And then from there, we would cut entire songs or scenes or sometimes even characters, or we would bring back a character, you know. And so um, there was a lot of revising, you know, even up to um, probably the week of um, of the opening back in 2013 when we uh, premiered the show in the Bay Area. So um, for me, it was, yeah, it was definitely a... Uh, pretty pretty eye-opening I'm like oh this is sort of like you recorded an album but then like the first time you played the album for people then you kind of gauge the reaction then you went back and recorded it again <laughs> so <laughs> um so it's uh yeah it's on a whole other scale yeah that gauging of the reaction seems to be an incredibly important and difficult moment right because you're looking at them going well you know how do i read that do you do something at the end where you ask questions of the people? You go, okay, they laughed at this line. That stays in. They didn't cry here. We have to do something different. I mean, how do you gauge <laughs> that reaction? That's To me, that would be really, uh, I feel like, almost impossible to, to get that sense. Yeah, that's a great question. And often it would be a combination of just kind of creative, the, the creator's um, judgment call like sometimes it's just illuminating just to be you know the the songwriter or the or the playwright sitting in the audience you know as watching the story unfold and kind of feeling the people react around you so sometimes you you definitely ask for for feedback and um, people you know give very helpful comments and definitely there's some you know there's some folks whose opinions carry particular weight um but in the end i think it would just come down to like well does it feel like it isn't right yet, and we and we need to you know, fix these particular parts. Um, but it is always a judgment call. It's uh, it's it's kind of the one of the mysteries of a big collaborative process of you know when is it done, when is it right? And there are times when you just have to say like, well, we you know we we have either run out of time and it is what it is, or we have somehow stumbled into something that we all feel a strong conviction is the right way to tell the story. And, and now we're sticking to it. With Tanya Schaefer's description of what it was like to work on a musical after having produced and written plays. Definitely a longer process, a much longer process, which I didn't really realize. But, you know, when you, when you take into account um, all the factors that go into a musical, I would say I had a lot to learn and it was a lot more complex. Um, it was also incredibly joyful, you know, to have the ideas for songs and then see them realized in ways that I could never realize them myself was amazing, you know, because Vienna's an amazing songwriter. Her music is so gorgeous. So to be able to say, wow, we want to create something here that is lyrical and beautiful and then have that come into being or create something here that's gritty and aggressive. And we, we used to joke that there are a number of songs which I would say like, and here it should build to a cacophony, you know? <laughs> so so right. we kept, and that was, Vienna would be like, oh, how do I build to a cacophony, you know? <laughs> um, so that that was amazing, but it, it's, it was a much more complicated and longer process, you know, partly because you're dealing with two people's schedules, one of whom 
was not only a busy touring musician, but also going to grad school and then getting a day job and, you know, <laughs> and then and living in a different state. But then also there's the fact that in, in playwriting, when you do a workshop, you read the scenes, you go, oh, okay, I'm going to change this. You go home overnight, you, you, you rewrite, you throw out the old scene, you write a new one. You know, when, when you've got songs involved, that's more time consuming. Writing the new one is more time consuming. And then even having the actors learn it to the degree where they can sing it so you can see how it works is more time consuming. So it just kind of draws everything out quite a bit. The project was Kickstarter funded, as as I understand it, uh, back in 2013, right? Uh, yeah, it was an Indiegogo campaign, I guess, that yeah funded the um uh, the original production, yeah. So tell me about getting funding like that. I mean, is that something that um, you look for? Because I think you've done other um, funding like that, crowdsourcing the funding. And um, has that, you, do you see that as something that you'll continue to do, something that's really been um, helpful? Or are there times you say, geez, there are more traditional things like having the backing of a, a label or something like that? And I say this as somebody who's really not familiar with the business. So I'm assuming <laughs> that, you know, that's part of the background. Yeah, well, having done two crowdfunding campaigns now, yeah, one for the Fourth Messenger premiere production and another one for a music video uh, that I did in uh, 2013 as well. Um, I guess the main lessons that I learned is that it's an amazing way to connect with an audience and to to kind of make uh, to kind of invite people along for a journey. And definitely, it's a it's a great way to you know, get something funded as well as kind of build excitement about it. Um, at the same time, it's a ton of work. And it also, you know, one of the things I've discovered is that it actually takes me a long time to fulfill all of the uh, commitments and, and rewards, you know, for right. for yeah. a campaign of this size. And so I definitely, um, so I guess I'd say um, if this is going out as advice to anybody considering crowdfunding, um, I'd say that definitely it's a great tool to um, kind of harness your audience and your community to do something together, um, but definitely uh, do your research in terms of how much time things will take and what else will be on your plate as you are um, kind of going through the full list of all the rewards and, uh, and, and promises that you've made to folks for the hard-earned money that they've pledged to support you. <laughs> Indiegogo, Kickstarter, they... It's a very exciting development for artists, I would say. It makes it a lot easier to cut out the middleman in your fundraising and to really reach out directly to your audience. It, 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 the Indiegogo campaign was an amazing experience for us. We did that for the production, and we raised you know, about $40,000, which was twice what, we, what our goal was for that particular part of our fundraising effort. So, yeah, it was pretty incredible. I mean, I... Gosh, my first solo show that I did a number of years ago, I fundraised to individuals via actual physical mail, you know? <laughs> and so it's a lot slower process. And I did manage to fundraise that way, but boy, it's a lot easier to send out an email and it makes it so much easier to kind of do follow-ups and updates. And, you know, when I raised money via physical mail 
since it was just me, it was a solo show, it was one letter, you know, and what came in came in and that was it. You know, I didn't have the, the opportunity to reach the audience directly, to remind them, to post clips, to, you know, post little videos. So all of that is just an incredible gift for independent artists. You revised the show's song arrangements for the album, as I understand it. What led to that, uh, changing them from the world premiere uh, to what you were going to do for the album? Yeah, I think there was some feeling that um, among our creative team um, that they weren't uh, doing everything we wanted them to do uh, in a few ways in terms of um, heightening the theatricality, capturing the scope of different moods of the piece. And there was also... Uh, our, our original orchestrations had a clarinet. Uh, they were four instruments, and we, it stayed four instruments, basically. Um, but there was a feeling that the clarinet was a misstep, that it was competing with voices um, and just wasn't the right instrument. And we wanted to go, especially for the recording, more towards an electric sound at certain times. Um, so we wanted to involve you know, a wider variety of sounds from the keyboard. Um, on the song, The Real Thing, we, we have violin and cello, but in the studio we were able to, you know, make the violin sound like a screaming electric guitar, which was pretty cool. So I think we were just going for, yeah, getting a more contemporary sound and kind of a wider range of sound. Well, the um, orchestration actually went through a number of um, revisions too. So, like we were talking about earlier, it was a there was just a lot of um, you know once you hear it and you get you you kind of understand. Oh, well, that's how one way that you know we could we could change things. Um, the the production um, in 2013 was a really successful one. I felt and um, the story really came across and people were really um, taken by it. But one thing we did realize was that. The, orchestra, the the arrangements um, musically, um, there were some ways in which they could you know, be changed to kind of even enhance the energy of particular places. And there were certain instrumental choices that we could play with um, to kind of bring out the voices in the story even more. And so um, when we decided to make an album, we thought, oh, well, here's an opportunity to you know, see if we can achieve that. And so that's when we brought uh, Ryan on board to... Uh, do the new arrangements and, and to be the music director. And so that was that was a really lovely addition too. Vienna Tang and Tanya Schaefer, thank you so much for talking to me today about your new musical, The Fourth Messenger. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this special Saturday edition of Craft the Show. And you'll join us on the regular Wednesday at 8 p.m. slot when we talk to writers and poets and singer-songwriters and composers like Vienna Tang. And if you visit craftthishow.com, you can see some of our upcoming guests, such as Jason Gay, author of Little Victories, who is a Thurber House guest on Thursday, November 19th, or Rebecca Frazier, who is with Six String Concerts on Friday, December 4th and many other fine folks. You can also review past shows with folks like Mitch Album, Jane Polly, Daniel Pink, Aaron Foley, Veronica Roth, Elizabeth Gilbert, Lee Child, Kara Cooney, Janet Ivanovich, Neil Gaiman and Amanda Plummer, and many others. That's craftthe show.com. 
And don't forget to donate to the mighty WCBE at wcbe.org to support your Central Ohio NPR station to keep programming like what you just heard on the air or perhaps to prevent the kind of programming you just heard from being on the air. Either way, go to wcbe.org and donate early, donate often. Until next time, this is Doug Dangler. Be creative.